y'all. I'm back with your Mayday episode. It's a couple weeks late because I had COVID, but here it is. So last year for Mayday, I did an episode about interracial union organizing. And this year, to continue on that theme, we're still going to talk about cross-racial coalition building and labor unions, specifically the UFW, the United Farm Workers, which was a Chicano organization, which organized mostly Mexican-American farm workers in the Southwest United States and its connection with several civil rights organizations. Because while UFW workers were boycotting, marching, and striking for farm worker rights, they were also working with the SCLC, that's the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SNCC, that's the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the NAACP, the NUL, which is the National Urban League, and the Black Panther Party. The relationship between the UFW and these five organizations varied a lot. Some of them were very strong and effective partnerships and endured quite a while, and some of them weren't. So we're going to talk about what worked, what didn't, and what came out of all of these alliances. It's super interesting, especially the relationship between the UFW and the Black Panther Party. For this discussion, I'm talking to Professor Lauren Areza of Denison University, author of To March for Others, The Black Freedom Struggle and the United Farm Workers. And today we're going to start the story a little differently to what prompted Professor Areza to start this research and do this work in the first place. Let's go. I was in graduate school, obviously, but it was at a time when in the media, there was this narrative that Black and Chicano people were like divided, especially news coming out of Los Angeles. These were groups in conflict, sometimes violently. We're thinking about like gang warfare in Los Angeles and a bunch of us who didn't know each other at all. We were all in grad school, different places, started being like, what is actually accurate? And a lot of people were paying attention. This lawyer, not a historian, wrote this book, like all about black and brown people being naturally divided. Not a well-done book, but it got a lot of attention because it was like the only thing out there talking about relationships between black and Chicano people. And so I was a grad student at UC Berkeley at the time, but I had colleagues who were in graduate school elsewhere, raising these questions. And I was already also thinking about it because I was working at the Martin Luther King Jr. Papers Project at Stanford, and the narrative of the civil rights movement was very much black and white. If it was about cross-racial coalition building, it was about working with white liberals. And I'm Mexican-American, and I grew up in California, and I was like, that doesn't really match my lived experience. So I wanted to kind of wonder what the connection was between the Black freedom struggle and the Chicano movement. And so I used the UFW as a lens to, to get at that. Yeah, the book is so interesting. And I think I want to start, one of the things that kind of prompted you was a book that said that like Black and brown people are naturally not, they naturally can't come together. Yeah. And your book doesn't like make a counter argument that like black and brown people are like naturally just going to build coalitions and like have solidarity. Right. One of the like big arguments of your book is that like coalition building takes work. Yeah. That's complex that it takes work. There's a lot of different things that go into it. This whole like natural allies or natural enemies. It's just too simplistic. Forming a cross-racial coalition, it takes work and it's, complex. There's a lot of different things that go into it, but it is possible. Because as much as there's unity in like being oppressed in America, there's also just, I guess, when you're in your own movement, it's kind of hard to be like, well, maybe I should reach out to this other movement that 
sort of aligned, but I guess it's kind of hard to see the end goal of like, maybe if we come together, all of us can win. Right. And I think, and that's one of the things I get at when I look at these different civil rights organizations, because, you know, I look at SNCC, SCLC, the NAACP, the Urban League, and the Black Panther Party, and you can see they all have very different attitudes about it. Like, there's some that are just like, not really that interested in coalition building, and then some that really see it as part of their strategy. And I think that's where my book surprises people, because like this whole relationship that forms between the Black Panther Party and the UFW takes a lot of people by surprise. Whereas for the Panthers, forming cross-racial coalitions was part of their program. You know, they're from a multiracial place, you know, being from Oakland, and that's what they came up with. And so it just didn't even occur to them that they wouldn't work with other oppressed peoples. And then they get a lot of flack for that from other Black power activists who think they should only be working with Black people. And the Panthers were like, well, no, like I have more in common with this working class person who's not black than I do with like a wealthy black person. So that I think is surprising. And then the other thing that really surprised people when they read my work is that Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference really weren't that interested in making those cross-racial alliances with the exception of, you know, working with white liberals. People always want to put them together. I've read books by historians that claim that they work together when they actually didn't. But it's interesting to see them wanting that alliance that didn't actually materialize. Yeah. When Martin Luther King was alive, the CLC wasn't really looking towards making those alliances. But then after MLK, that's when the coalition building started happening. Actually, like Coretta Scott King was a huge part of that. Yeah. I mean, it's very much because of Coretta and Ralph Abernathy, too. They're just coming at it in a totally different way. And I think a lot of it comes down to how they feel about organizing the working class and how they feel about working with organized labor. I mean, there are whole books about how King was so invested in organized labor and so supportive of it. But I found, you know, as I wrote my book, like, there was like a couple of unions he liked working with, but for the most part, he wanted to keep organized labor at arm's length. But there are entire books talking about this supposed fondness that he had for organized labor. But you actually, if you look at his actual words and actions, it doesn't match up with that. And we've even talked on this show before about the way that like organized labor was generally not friendly to Black people. So it like makes sense that MLK was like, these are generally like oppressive organisms. Maybe we shouldn't try to ally with them. Yeah. And the UFW definitely positions themselves in a kind of odd way because they're mostly Mexican-American, but they are a labor union. And then, like, as I wrote, like when they affiliate with the AFL-CIO, it creates a major problem for the new left. Like, you know, you see SNCC like, I don't know, we can deal with them because, you know, the AFL-CIO is pro-Vietnam, like they exclude black people, like all this stuff. So the fact that the UFW sees itself as a labor union beyond being a Chicano organization actually does make that cross-racial coalition building difficult a lot of times because there is a very well-documented and extensive history of organized labor completely excluding 
African-Americans, not just from union membership, but from entire industries. So it does make it hard. I guess. Oh, yeah, we should keep talking about SCLC maybe a little bit. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about like when they did start to work together, what it looked like, what they were doing. Because you talk about like Operation Breadbasket and boycotting stuff and even Coretta Scott King visiting Cesar Chavez in prison. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting because it goes very quickly from SCLC, like not doing anything to support the farm workers to Abernathy and Coretta and Jesse Jackson and Operation Breadbasket being very vocal and visible in their support. And I found that uh, Operation Breadbasket was particularly interesting. This was a wing of SCLC headquartered in Chicago and run by Jesse Jackson that dealt with employment discrimination. So basically businesses that operate in the black community, but that wouldn't hire black people or that didn't have black people. Maybe they would have them as like lower level employees, but not among like the executives. So very much borrowing from a model that was popularized in the 1930s by Adam Clayton Powell Jr. This like don't buy where you can't work type campaigns. So this is a really great example of coalitions working really well when you take the time to recognize like, hey, we might have different reasons for opposing this one company, but we can bring those together. I think that's something people not aren't always willing to do. They're just like, well, I've got my fight against them and you've got your fight against them. And what UFW and Operation Breadbasket did really well is like, huh, we're targeting the same stores for totally different reasons. Let's work together on this. So, you know, Operation Breadbasket already had this really established network and they make it so you basically can't find grapes in the city of Chicago because they force these major grocery store chains that they'd recently been victorious against to remove California grapes from their shelves. And whenever Chavez is in Chicago, Jesse Jackson provides him space. He has like a, a radio show and like these weekly meetings. And so it gives him a, a platform. As I said, it's a really great example of recognizing the connections between their different battles against these grocery store chains. Right. And then, as you mentioned, yeah, Coretta goes to Arizona she visits Chavez in jail and immediately walks across the street and holds a press conference and a rally. You know, the black community in Arizona wasn't large, but she takes it upon herself to encourage them to participate in those boycotts. Ralph Abernathy goes to meet with Chavez in Coachella and goes on a march with him to Calexico. So they're not just like one of the things I talk about in the book is like the different ways you can be supportive, you know, like members of the Urban League or like writing letters. But it doesn't involve really putting yourself out there in terms of like visibly supporting. You know, it's like the company knows you're writing the letter, but like nobody else knows. But with this shift in strategy, Jesse Jackson and Ralph Abernathy and Coretta Scott King are not just kind of tacitly supporting the farm workers and the grape and lettuce boycotts, like they're using their visibility and using the stages that they have to bring more attention to the farm workers in really concrete and really helpful ways. I think we need to take a couple steps back just to understand what was up with grapes and boycotting grapes at this point. 
So the California grape boycott, the UFW would target one grape grower at a time, but usually they didn't go after grape growers. Usually they'd go after processors, like companies that would make products out of grapes. So their first major boycott is against, in 1966, is against Shenley Industries. They make liquor. And so it's easy to boycott because they have identifiable brands. And so they're going against this one grape grower. And the thing is, they're going against somebody who's growing table grapes. And so like when you go to buy grapes at the grocery store, you don't really pay attention to the brand of the grape. You just buy the grape. And so it was really hard to get the boycott going. And so then that was complicated by the fact that people were saying like, hey, boycott GMR grapes. And then Giomara got labels from other grape growers. So like, even if you were trying to be really, you know, mindful and only buying union grapes, you're being tricked because they're getting labels from other people or other companies. So what they decide to do, they're like, okay, the grape itself has to become the label. And we're just going to organize a boycott of all California grapes. And they realized that that would target companies that they didn't have any beef with, but they're like, well, maybe those growers then could put pressure on the offending growers. So it ends up becoming um, not just a nationwide boycott, an international boycott. Organizers go to Canada and to Europe to organize boycotts there because grape growers are trying to ship their grapes everywhere since they're having a hard time selling them in the U.S., organizers were dispatched to cities all over the country and they would get grocery stores to not carry California grapes. And if they didn't, there'd be like picket lines in front of stores. So as I said, with Operation Breadbasket, they already had an operation like that set up because they would do picket lines when they would protest grocery stores who wouldn't hire black workers in black neighborhoods. So they already had that structure in place. Yeah. When, when, organizations had similar organizing tactics that does make coalition building easier. Since you mentioned the Shinley boycott, that was like the first one. And back at that time, SNCC was really the only organization that was actively working with the UFW. CORE was as well, the Congress of Racial Equality, but they kind of came in, did some work and then moved on to other projects. Whereas with SNCC, they were invited in to teach classes on nonviolent resistance. And then some of them end up sticking around to help with the Delano to Sacramento march. And then Marshall Gans of SNCC basically becomes like a liaison. He's like a SNCC staff member working with the UFW. Eventually, kind of gradually, he ends up becoming a full-fledged UFW staff member. So SNCC is really, yeah, they're like really the first civil rights organization that really has a sustained relationship with the UFW. Back to the fact that like organizing, when they organize in similar ways, it's easier to ally. You mentioned nonviolence, that they both had that in common, but they also, their approach to building power was very similar. They were both about going out to the rural poor and like forming personal relationships. What you do see in the common there is like SNCC is very well-versed in kind of rural structures of poverty. So they've been working with sharecroppers they understood the exploitation that migrant farm workers experienced. So they were just much more interested and knowledgeable of rural issues than the other civil rights organizations. You know, as I said in my book, like SCLC, NAACP, Urban League, these were all very urban organizations. 
they're based in large cities. They are mostly organizing people in cities. Like they're not really going out into the rural areas. So SNCC is like the ones at that time who have that knowledge. You talk about how like Cesar Chavez was very much like, we got to do this nonviolently. They were doing strikes. You talked about that long march. They were boycotting things, but if they were going to do it, they wanted it to be nonviolent, like in the civil rights movement. And ooh, nonviolence does take some training, especially when people are being violent towards you. Right. Nick had one office in San Francisco. So there were some SNCC members who were already there. That's where they published their newspaper that was called The Movement. They were publishing news about what was happening with the farm workers. And so Chavez reaches out. And I think a lot of people forget this, especially when we look at scholarship on the civil rights movement. People look at the self-defense of groups like the Black Panther Party and think that that's not the norm. But really, it's nonviolence that's really not the norm, right? King and Chavez had both studied Gandhi and Thoreau, and so they believed in nonviolence on a spiritual level. But it didn't mean that other people felt the same way. And for a lot of even civil rights activists, they they saw nonviolence as a strategy and not so much as a way of life. But they both see it as a way of life. But again, that wasn't really the case with the you know majority of the actual workers. And they are being really subjected to a lot of violence. Law enforcement in these agricultural communities is pretty much kind of a security force for the growers. So when they're having picket lines on the fields, like they're getting harassed, they're getting attacked, they're getting clubbed, they're getting like hit by police cars. I mean, like really extreme violence. And then later they bring out goons from the Teamsters to attack them. So yeah, you have to be trained to not respond with self-defense. Yeah, so SNCC had already had all that training, and so they came out and do that. And CORE participated in those trainings to an extent as well. But again, then they don't really stick around. Yeah, you talk about SNCC actually stuck around through like multiple of the strikes, and like they were around for quite a while. Oh yeah, and multiple people, mostly Marshall Gans, but... You know, Mike Miller continues to work with them. This guy, Terry Cannon, one of the guys from SNCC takes a lot of the photographs on the march. There's a really a whole contingent that is working really closely. Marshall Gans and Mike Miller being probably the two leads in terms of that connection. Oh, yeah. That's another thing in your book that you emphasize is that part of the work of coalition building is that there need to be specific people who like kind of bridge the organizations yeah, yeah, this idea of a bridge leader, which I'm borrowing this concept from scholarship on Black women activists, particularly within the church. But these ideas of being a bridge leader where there has to be someone who's going to say, okay, this is what we're going to do, you know, who's going to be the kind of liaison, you know, between these different groups, right? So we see that with Mike Miller very much. We definitely see that with Bobby Seale and the Black Panther Party, where he's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. Oh, and then even like in the West Coast NAACP, the director of that, he's the one who says, okay, we're going to work with the farm workers. And then when these people leave these organizations or pass away, then that bridge can sometimes be lost if somebody doesn't take it back up. That is one of the reasons why the SNCC UFW coalition fell apart. 
there's a whole lot to that. SNCC was moving towards kind of like a black nationalist, black separatist philosophy. And part of that was dismissing white people. And SNCC members saw Mexican-Americans as white. Yes, which, as I pointed out in my book, was kind of odd timing, given that like this was happening at the exact moment when the Chicano movement is really building steam and there's this whole discourse around Mexican-Americans as brown, right, as rejecting this notion that they were white. And you have these Mexican-American women who are members of SNCC who basically they're told by SNCC that they're white and they're like, well, but (laughs) then they recall the times that they had been discriminated against for being Mexican-American. They're like, wait a second. So they're in this strange position. One of my readers pointed out that or observed when she read the chapter about that relationship falling apart that she thought it was sad like because it was such a strong relationship and so much good work had come out of it and then to see it fall apart over these things that are happening within the organization so far away a lot of this is coming out of the atlanta SNCC office run by members who are actually really recent to the organization they hadn't been there from its founding So they weren't really steeped in the organizing philosophy of SNCC, right? So they came in and were like, this is the direction we need to go. And like somehow people listen and, you know, SNCC itself falls apart. It's a very complicated undoing for that relationship. It is sad that they just kind of cast aside all of the good work for something that felt kind of arbitrary to me, to be like, we're going to, defied race this very specific way instead of this way that we've been doing it the whole time. And then it's weird too, because some of the leadership at SNCC at the time, like I had a really hard time grappling with Stokely Carmichael's thinking about Latinos. On the one hand, he's like, he goes to Latin America. He talks about solidarity with Latin America and with Cuba in particular But then when it comes to Mexican-Americans, he doesn't express that same feeling of solidarity, which is different than the members of SNCC who were Mexican-American or from areas, you know, Marshall Gans, who works really closely with the United Farm Workers. He's from Bakersfield, right? So these are people who had such a different life experience in terms of thinking about American racial minority groups. Yes, we should talk about the NLU and the NAACP. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that because that's kind of like the least fun relationship. But. I know, they're, they're, the least, they're the least fun, really. Like, I mean, I think what's interesting about them is, as I said, like the West Coast NAACP is so active and they basically are like having to go against the national NAACP to do it. So it, it reveals a lot about the bureaucracy of these organizations, but that bureaucracy really stands in the way of coalition building. Those organizations are so hierarchical. Like when an individual person can't make a decision, it's got to go through this whole chain of command. It makes that process of coalition building like really hard. One more thing on the NLU and the NAACP. One of the big things is that they were both kind of very middle class focused and they made alliances with white businesses. And because the UFW was very consciously boycotting business that's kind of the opposite of like trying to gain its support so that like clash in organizing strategy was a big reason why it didn't work out yeah 
these two organizations really prioritize their relationship with the white business community. And like, you see that when, gosh, it's been so long since I've written this, but when like Shenley donates this huge chunk of money, I want to say it's to the NAACP. Oh yeah, it was. And yeah. And it's like right at the time when DFW is organizing about to boycott Shenley. I'm like, that's weird timing, you know? And then when the boycott's resolved, Shenley writes this press release and gets Roy Wilkins to release it, like showing how much power their money has over him. And this was when Roy Wilkins was the executive director of the NAACP. Like when I found that, like that press release and like, you know, here we wrote this. And then I see the next version, which is like that exact press release, but being released under his letterhead. I was like, whoa. So, yeah, I mean, that was the choice that they made. They're like, they really depended on that white corporate support, especially the Urban League, because their whole strategy from their founding in, what, 1910, was that employment, improved employment, was a path to racial equality and better race relations. But that was predicated on, like, basically these white corporations giving jobs to Black people. And so they were kind of very much beholden to these corporations, So boycotts become a real problem for them because they don't want to anger the people who are providing money for the organizations and jobs for African-Americans. It's funny, a a colleague of mine who's a professor, the thing he really clung to on this or zoomed in on in this book was the part where I talk about Jackie Robinson. He gets this job and his brother-in-law was a vice president at Shenley. And so Jackie Robinson goes into PR and basically starts trying to convince Black people to not support the UFW. Like he writes about it in a syndicated column. He sends telegrams to Martin Luther King Jr. telling him to not support the UFW. And so that was really interesting that that was the bargain he made, right? He and his family had really found their, this place for themselves in corporate America that was in the food and beverage industry and so then become this outspoken voice against the UFW in a way that, I know it just, it, it just totally changed the way I looked at Jackie Robinson. It was, it was disappointing. But okay. Real, real sharp pivot to the Black Panther Party. It's amazing. Yeah. Like you yeah. said it's super surprising. And where do I want to start with that? I mean, it's, it's not surprising if you know the Panthers philosophy well. But I think from people on the outside who just see Chavez in terms of nonviolence and then you think about him working at the Panthers who, you know, photographed with shotguns, like it seems to some people to be surprising. But if we really look at like what the Panthers talk about it, it really much makes you know sense. The leadership, not every Panther, but the leadership were socialists, right? They prioritized working with the working class. Right. And so when they see what's going on with the farm workers, it resonates with them. And they see this as a cause that the Panthers should be involved in. And as I said, this is part of their program. Like they formed coalitions with all sorts of organizations, with the Red Guard in Chinatown, with the Young Lords Party and the Young Patriots in Chicago with the Brown Berets in Los Angeles. Like, so cross-racial coalition building was just part of their program. 
It's just that the other groups they align with are usually more radical <laughs> than the UFW. I think that's another part that's surprising. Yeah. In the book, you talk, there were times when the Black Panther Party would be like, do you want us to send our guns? And the UFW would be like, no, no thank you. <laughs> we appreciate the support, but that's, yeah. that's not our platform. Yeah. But it's interesting because the Panthers totally respect that. They're like, okay, okay. But yeah, it happens multiple times. But it's interesting because the UFW does want that intimidation factor. Because I mentioned when they do the picket lines and they're being harassed by the police, then the Panthers show up on the picket line and that harassment stops, right? So they basically become a security force. But then there are times where like, do you want us to roll up? And they're like, nope, no, we're good. (laughs) Like... So um, it's this interesting negotiation, but it's interesting also to see how much the Panthers respect what the UFW is about. And I think that's something that's really key to coalition building. And one of the reasons that the relationship between the United Farm Workers and the Black Panther Party is so successful is that they listen to each other and respect each other's decisions, even if it's a decision that they wouldn't have made themselves. When they're like, hey, do you want us to roll up on these Teamsters? And Chavez says, no. And it's like, okay, like they don't judge them for it. They're still there for them. They're like, we'll help you whatever way you want. And I think that's the key to good organizing, like and good coalition building is that you're not coming in there telling somebody what they should do. Instead, you are saying, what do you need me to do? Like, I will do what you want me to do. I'm not going to come in here with ideas. That's so key even in allyship, right? Like, there are a lot of people who say they're allies and coming and being like, we should do this and you should do that. Like, that's not how it works, right? Like, true allyship and true organizing is like, okay, I'm here. What can I do? And so I think that's a reason that it's worked so well with the UFW and the Black Panther Party is like, they do that. Then you talk about the election of Bobby Seale. And that, oh, that part is so interesting. What I didn't even realize Bobby Seale ever ran for mayor of Oakland. Yeah. And it's interesting. He doesn't win, but he does force a runoff election and they register so many people to vote that the next mayoral election, uh, Oakland does elect its first black mayor. So it does set some precedence. But yeah, it's I had a lot of fun writing that part, but it was interesting. It says something about the historical process. I was interviewing Bill Jennings, who I quote extensively in the book, and he was like, well, you have to talk to big man about the plane ride. And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, big man went with Bobby Seale on this plane ride to go meet with Chavez. I got in touch with big man. That was his Panther nickname that stuck with him. And he told me a story that's not written down anywhere. The only way I could have gotten that story was from him. Bobby Seale, I did interview, but Bobby Seale has, I mean, this is kind of, did this interview so long ago. And even then, this is more than 10 years ago. Bobby Seale didn't remember it. Gosh, it was way more than 10 years ago. It was more than 15 years ago that I talked to Bobby Seale about this, probably almost 20. And he uh, had no memory of it, but big man did. And so he tells the story about like somebody getting them a crop duster and then flying to La Paz and eating with the farm workers and Bobby Seale and Chavez hanging out and Chavez and Green to endorse Bobby Seale's mayoral campaign. You know, he doesn't just do that. He actually goes to Oakland and he goes door to door in Latino neighborhoods, like campaigning for Seale. And that goes a long way in 
convincing kind of older and more conservative Latinos to give Seal a chance. And Seal was really very forward thinking or is very forward thinking. You know, he includes things in his platform that really are for the Chicano community in Oakland. He's talking about bilingual education before really anybody else is in California. He's talking about childcare for migrant workers, like this stuff that's really, I mean, it's a value to everybody, but like he's really paying attention to what the Chicano community in Oakland wants and needs. There's a picture in the book of Bobby Seale and Chavez like together in Oakland. It's, it's so good. So I found that picture at Wayne State University when I was writing my dissertation a very long time ago. And it was so funny. They had it in a folder and they had it labeled like Cesar Chavez with black men. Like that was all it said. Like they like they did. And I had to like tell them, I'm like, this is Bobby Seal. This is the co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And so now it's like you go to their website of the archive and it's like the main picture on the website. You see that picture everywhere. I found that picture. But yeah, that picture, like the one where they're shaking hands with the kids from Malcolm X Elementary. And it's just like, and then Richard Ibarra. And I did interview Richard Ibarra, who's uh, Chavez's son-in-law and bodyguard. So I was able to talk to him about that. But it it was interesting. I went, it was quite the process to track down Bobby Seale and get him to talk to me. But I went to see him at a speaking engagement he gave in San Francisco. And I was like, hi, I'm working my dissertation. I would like to talk to you about working with Cesar Chavez. And he was like, I met Cesar Chavez. And I was like, yeah, uh, here's a picture of you two together. And he had no memory of it. And mm-hmm. as I said, this was like over 15 years ago. And so that was really hard. But having Richard Ibarra and having Big Man, who has since passed away, was so, so helpful. And I wouldn't have gotten those stories anywhere else. Like it's not written down anywhere. But yes, I did find that picture. And they just had it like... Cesar Chavez and Richard Ibarra with a black man. I was like, obviously, I'll just FYI. <laughs> I love the stories. What his story is like, I went to this archive and they were just disrespecting this like very important like, document. They just didn't know. And I'm like, how could you not? Yeah, it's a labor archive. So like everything they have there is union related. So they wouldn't have things related to the Panthers, really. So it kind of makes sense because like everybody there is trained in like labor history. So it's a super great place to do research. I love doing labor history because unions keep every piece of paper. All the archives that have labor history, it's like so well organized. Oh, there was actually more to this Black Panther Party UFW relationship. Yes. Kind of like SCLC, they allied over, you you kind of mentioned it, they allied over the businesses that they picketed. Different reasons, but they did. Safeway. Yeah. Safeway, that's the big example. So Safeway, biggest grocery store chain on the West Coast. And, you know, so at the same time, you have the fact that they're selling California grapes and they're refusing to donate to the Black Panther Party's free breakfast for children program. I will say, so the way the free breakfast for children program worked, basically a Panther program to address academic underachievement. Basically, if you're hungry and you're at school, you're not going to pay attention you're hungry so they figure like oh you know if we give kids a hot meal they'll do better in school so they start this program starts in oakland but it spreads to every panther chapter around the country 
But the way they got it to work was they would get donations from local businesses, either through actual food, like from grocery stores, you know, eggs, milk, things like that, or monetary donations more often. So then they could go buy the things. And then Panthers and people from the community would volunteer to cook and serve the breakfasts. So the thing with the Panthers was that they would go to the businesses and ask for donations. And if they didn't donate, then they would organize a boycott of that business. So, you know, definitely some pressure there. But because Safeway was the largest grocery store chain in the West, they're like, what are we going to do? So they don't contribute. And so it's at when this is happening that the UFW is also dealing with Safeway because they're selling California grapes, like the second largest buyer of California grapes. So again, they decide, you know, rather than having these two struggles separate, they're going to put them together. Yeah. And I think my favorite piece of, you know, so like I mentioned with the picket lines, like they would walk picket lines together, but I love Bobby Seal's use of the motor pool. So a lot of Panthers had military experience. They were veterans and, or at least the senior leadership did. And Bobby Seal worked in the motor pool. He worked for the Air Force, I believe. And he had brought back this idea of let's have a party motor pool. So this basically cars for party use. So they do the picket line, but then they take it a step further where they start driving people to other grocery stores. You know, people come to do their shopping and they're like, hey, please don't shop here. But I know you need groceries. So we'll drive you to Lucky's and you can shop there and then we'll drive you home. And a lot of people, you know, they were taking the bus or they were walking. You don't want to do either of those things with groceries. So the idea of, you know, being driven, it's like, oh, okay. And it is like totally successful and just really, really creative. And it's just so helpful for both of them. Um, They end up forcing this one Safeway location in West Oakland to close. I'm not sure for how long, but it does end up closing for at least a while. So like you said, Bobby Seale did not win, even though he, the runoff, like that's still, there's the runoff. They registered a bunch of people to vote. Yes, it was still like it was still successful. Yes. But kind of right after that, not right after it, but pretty soon after it, both organizations, like the reason why this coalition falls apart, a lot of it is just kind of both of the organizations were kind of on a downhill slope. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, after Bobby Steele doesn't win and, and and the election, it's really powerful, but it does lead to some major problems within the party. Because they basically tell everybody who is in the party all over the country, like, hey, close up shop and come to Oakland to work on this campaign. And some people are like, "Mm, no. So they just leave the party and stay where they are. But other people do that. And it's like, so all these people have relocated to Oakland to work on this campaign and then they lose. Well, so then what? Right. And then Huey Newton's released from prison and regains control and there are various leadership struggles and so Bobby Seale ends up leaving the party. And again, you know, you have that loss of that bridge leadership. And then meanwhile, at the same time, the farm workers like had gotten these contracts in the grapes, but then like immediately thereafter, there's a lettuce boycott. And then there's like a gallo boycott and there's a second grape boycott. And it's just kind of never ending. And so they really struggle. Though you do see... The Panthers and their newspaper are still supportive, but really when you get to like the latter part of the seventies, 
the Panthers are really focused on their Oakland Community School. It becomes pretty much controlled by the women of the organization, where they're operating this award-winning school. In Oakland, they're still publishing the newspaper, but they just don't have as many people and as many locations to do the kinds of programs that they had done before. So it's much narrower in focus. So that's another thing with coalitions. I mean, you know, sometimes groups evolve. You know, sometimes the coalitions exist for very particular purposes. And then once that purpose is no more, then the, the coalition kind of falls apart, right? And that's kind of what happens. I mean, the UFW definitely certainly still needed support, but, you know, there's so much change in the Panther Party beginning in the early 1970s, like right after SEAL's campaign, that it just pretty much becomes unsustainable. There's just too much chaos within the party. They have to tend to their own house before they can have these coalitions. You had a point that like, there's really no such thing as like natural enemies or natural allies. It's about the work that organizations put in. You talk about it's about like mutual respect and listening to each other, just kind of seeing an overlap and seeing that there can be benefits to working together. Yes. And I think it's interesting to see some of these things play out more recently. I remember being so disappointed. Do you remember a few years ago, there was this whole like hashtag campaign, Oscar so white. Yeah. And it was about the lack of like black Oscar nominees. And then Latino activists were like, actually, you know, there's a, a lot less Latino representation. And then somebody started this hashtag, not your mule. Like, I'm not going to carry this load for you. Like just basically refusing coalition. It was so maddening to me because I was like, ah, this is such a wasted opportunity because here is a moment where you do have the exact same issue with the exact same people. The one thing I was heartened by, Chris Rock did this routine where he was like, given that you're talking about the Oscars and the film industry being in Los Angeles, you know, it's like, given how huge the Latino population is, like, you've got to try to not, <laughs> to not hire Latinos in Hollywood. Like, you have to make the effort to not to. Like, so he, at least he did that. But there was this campaign of like, not your mule. Like, we will not work with you. Mm -hmm. You handle your own stuff by yourself. And I was like, what? Like, that was just so counter-revolutionary. But I was really heartened, I guess it was like two years ago, there was all these great demonstrations of Black and Latino solidarity all over the country, right? Um, regards to, you know, immigration rights, the fact that Latin American immigrants were being basically caged at the border, a lot of Black activists were really mobilizing against that. You have Latino activists mobilizing after all the unrest that followed George Floyd's murder. You see a lot of these big dem visible demonstrations in like Los Angeles and Atlanta and Houston. That I thought was really gratifying. I was like, okay, now we're listening to each other. And now we're recognizing like, hey, this thing that's affecting you is also in some way affecting me. Like if you think about the incarceration of immigrants, the same people who are doing that are the companies that are running these like private prisons targeting poor Black people. So looking at immigration policy and, and the prison system, it's really two sides of the same coin. And so it was, it was as awful as all that was, it was gratifying to see activists recognizing that and acting upon that in a way they hadn't in the recent past. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. 
Sure. Thanks for having me. Solidarity. It's not natural, but it can be amazing. This episode reminded me that I have yet to do a Black Panther Party episode, which feels overdue. Now, if you like this show, I ask two things. One, keep sharing the show with people that you know. And two, forgive me if there's not an episode on the 30th. My grandfather's funeral is going to be that week, and I might, I might not be able to do it then. But I'll be back. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>